Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Don Marie Paley, a journalist from Vancouver, BC, who has been based in Mexico since 2011. Don has a PhD in sociology from the Autonomous University of Puebla, Mexico, where her dissertation examined neoliberal war and neoliberal disappearance and resistance to it in Mexico, in particular in the Laguna region in the northern state of Coahuila. It was released as a book entitled Guerra Neoliberal, Desaparición y Busqueda en el Norte de México in 2020. Together with Simon Granovsky Larson, she is co-editor of Organized Violence, Capitalist Warfare in Latin America. Drug War Capitalism, her first book, was released in November 2014 with AK Press. She's written for magazines and newspapers, including The Nation, The Dominion, Ms. Magazine, The T, Georgia Strait, Briar Patch, NAC, NACLA Report, This Magazine, La Jornada, and many others with a focus on alternative media. Upside Down World, her work in radio and television has been featured on Democracy Now!, Free Speech Radio News, and CBC Radio. Dawn worked as editor of Toward Freedom for one year before leaving to pursue her own projects in September 2020. I welcome Dawn Marie Paley to Savage Minds. I'm so happy to have you on the show. I have to say I came across your book because one of my readers recommended it to me. And I read Drug War Capitalism with great enthusiasm. And I wanted to know how you got involved in your interests in Latin America, both as a student and as a writer and researcher. Sure. So um, it sort of stemmed from my desire to to do journalism um, as a young person from a working class family that didn't have any kind of real connection to like the media industry or anything. And this is like early aughts. Uh, so it wasn't, we weren't as connected. It didn't seem as accessible back then um, as maybe it does now in terms of like self-publishing and all kinds of stuff. So I, um, yeah, I started doing some some writing initially um, in the suburbs of Vancouver uh, where I grew up. And the first a real journalism project I did in Latin America was um, with somebody who had more experience, like looking for international funding, and and we were able to secure a little bit of funding to um, to do some writing and some research on Canadian mining companies, especially uh, in Argentina. It was around the time of um, a significant uh, popular vote in the town of Esquel, uh, where it was one of the first recorded like consultas against a Canadian mining company where. The population uh, voted on mass against um, hosting this kind of company. So I, I ended up working on Canadian mining for for quite a few years. The sort of way that these companies uh, divide communities and and destroy environments and and kind of eventually got a little bit tired of sort of telling that story over and over again, as if the problem was one bad apple in you know a sea of good canadian mining companies and that's where i started doing some of the work um, to figure out how to move towards writing something longer which ended up being drug board capitalism looking more at this structural aspects of how the extractive industries in particular but also other segments of capital actually are able to take advantage of these structural conditions created through the drug war well, it's interesting that you begin with something that's quite emblematic when one studies Latin American studies, 
one of the first things that one might read and probably will read if they're taking an intro course to that would be Open Veins of Latin America. Mm-hmm. And that book quite well explains the mining exploitation in the Americas, especially near Potosí Oruro in Bolivia. You were seeing this contemporarily, however. Exactly, because um, the basically the discovery of cyanide allowed them to mine areas that, that in the colonial times would not have been feasible. You know, we're talking about a couple of grams per ton of gold right now is, or, you know, since the, since the introduction of cyanide into this process has become feasible for corporations. So they're, they're even mining colonial gold dumps, um, gold mining dumps, because they can get at such a smaller quality quantity now of gold than before. And yeah, of course, I mean, I think, um, one thing that I really, I really love is going back to, going back through the history, looking at what resistance looked like in colonial times, what resistance looked like in the early republic, and how it looks now as well. Because there's always been people resisting these um, efforts, right, to, to strip their land from them, to to pollute their territories, and etc. So it's it's very important to I think make those historical connections and and not and not position these these events as, as exactly new. When I write on any topic, really, people think I'm talking about uniquely the present. And I, I find it my task oftentimes to remind people that this is a rinse and repeat of history. Galeano, in fact, goes through the exploitation of the Americas as a way of teaching people in the mid and latter 20th century about the exploitation of the Americas, both in mining and in other areas. Could you explain to the layperson how the kind of exploitation happened in Argentina that you witnessed in terms of how multinationals come in? Sure. So just to clarify, I mean, Argentina was sort of my first, my first some of my first work in Latin America. I've worked way more in Central America and especially in Mexico. Um, but here you can see those same processes, right? So um, what, what I've observed uh, multiple times in Mexico and, and is basically how these companies come in. Um, and there's a lot of communal land in Mexico. And this is something that obviously dates back to you know, pre-colonial times in terms of how land was held and managed in indigenous communities. And it sort of was renewed in some senses with the Mexican Revolution. So you have a lot of commonly held land, which obviously when you think about it from a capitalist perspective or from a business perspective is sort of very anathema to what development is supposed to be, right? It's supposed to be all individual and private property and so on. But the fact is you still have today about half of Mexican territory is communally owned. Um, And so these companies come in and basically divide um, the authorities connected to the communal land holding, um, sometimes using violence, often using, I mean, I mean, actual, you know, arms and, and, and that kind of very overt violence, coercive violence, but also using, you know, bribes and, and promises and, and all kinds of, you know, we're Canadian, we're, we're going to do a great job, don't worry, you know, we're not, we're going to not pollute and so on and, and end up dividing a community to the point where neighbors don't speak to each other, family members don't speak to each other um, in order to sort of force a, a, a what usually ends up being a, a very destructive 
uh, mining project on onto people's land. And, and, you know, there's all kinds of scenarios that play out in terms of community resistance. Um, but unfortunately, too often they include folks, you know, losing their lives, like, like, like their lives ending because they're refusing this toxicity in their territory. But I mean, in terms of explaining to the layperson, I mean, I do think that that's, that's why I like journalism. Um, you know, I've studied a PhD, I've, I, I enjoy some aspects of, of academic um, inquiry, shall we say, or reflection. But I feel like for me as a journalist, I'm interested in, in communicating with folks who read the media for their information with folks um, who aren't sort of steeped in leftist theory and, and leftist politics per se. Like, for example, my own family, like I love to think that my articles are things my mom will read and go, wow, that's really interesting. I didn't know that, right? She'll go, what's neoliberalism? Um, but so I think part of telling that story is also making connections um, telling the hu telling human stories, talking about people's own experiences, you know, their little garden, their access to water, and trying to make those um, connections with, with folks' lives, um, whether it's it's here in Mexico in the city or or in in Canada or the United States or or beyond. So trying to use those those human stories in a way to make that connection, and also kind of break down the idea that this phenomenon of, for example. Um, open pit mining and, and these kind of extractive companies is something, you know, that only happens in the quote unquote third world, right? That only happens in Mexico and, and Central America and, 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 and South, right? Where I think it's really important to always connect back. And so, you know, one thing that I do often in, in my work and just in, in conversations is say, you know, in Canada, it's not like it's better. Right. So in Canada, you have these Canadian mining companies acting almost exact same way in indigenous territories in throughout the country, polluting watersheds, um, dividing communities, making promises and, and later abandoning these communities. So it's also trying to sort of de-exoticize um, this type of exploitation and, and just and be able to sort of understand that it's, it, this is foundational to capitalism and, and it's, it's happening all over the place. I find it fascinating when people then say, but I never read about this. <laughs> right. And I say, well, there's a reason. A lot of the communities being exploited by multinationals, even in North America, Canada, US, are the people with the least power, often, of course, poor immigrants. I mean, we see this in Canada and the US with the harvesting industry. And so, of course, silence ensues because a lot of people are undocumented as well. So it's funny to see how the work of journalists is out there, but the access to it as well is often not obvious because we're getting so much information. I think of NAFTA. I was speaking to a guest yesterday or the day before about NAFTA and how that was rolled out as somehow a boon to Mexico, Canada, and the US, but it was anything but. So these kinds of packages that seem to be globalization, that word, somehow left people thinking it was something good for everyone. I mean, to an extent, I do think that there has been like a, an, a growing awareness around, the, for example, these trade agreements and how they're in fact, they're not about us, right? They're not about regular people, working class people, teachers, healthcare workers, uh, et cetera, right? They're really, I mean, they have been a boon for transnational corporations. Um, and I think there's an increasing analysis around that for sure. I mean, one thing that's interesting is that Mexico's president currently, like when he was a candidate, which, you know, was a decades long period, 
um, he's been involved in, in politics forever. This is Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. He was very vocal against NAFTA, right? As something that that effectively empirically um, has been awful for, for Mexicans. Um, but as president, he has actually, you know, said that the renegotiation the renegotiation of, of NAFTA that took place uh, last year was necessary, and that it and that it was basically his his sort of gift to the middle class is is basically the framing. So it's also, you know, there's a big disconnect between how people in power talk about these trade agreements as so necessary and so good for the middle class and good for people. Um, and how it is actually lived out on the on the ground in the sort of household household level. It's it's a it's 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 a complete um, it's a it's a completely different experience. And I mean, I think you know, there's like you said, there's so much good journalism out there. Like I just read an incredible investigative piece about something that I have reported on and that I have been trying to follow. That I just it came out six months ago and I never saw it. Right. So it's like there's so much. It's incredible how much the mediascape has been changing over the past decade and even over the past just over the past five years. Like there is just so much misinformation, so much fake news, and you really have to work hard to find the, the good stuff, the good reporting. So that, that's a huge challenge. And, and not even to talk about the other end of it, which is the production end, like doing going up to you know the north of Canada and doing a, an investigative story about you know, a community struggle is incredibly expensive. Like no newsrooms in Canada are really going to be paying for that kind of investigative work right now. So that's the same reason you get those major silences around these huge issues, right? Absolutely. Your first book, Drug War Capitalism, is so impressive to me because you talk about how the U.S.-backed drug war in Colombia served as a blueprint for later machinations in Central America and Mexico. The irony for me is I was living in Mexico after I had come from MA 19 a court to do the Constituyente in Bogota. Right. I had seen the worst of terror in Colombia. And then I went to mm -hmm. Mexico. And I, oh, this is so different in terms of peaceful. Then yeah. years later, oh my gosh, what happened to Mexico broke my heart. I was no longer living there, but certainly read about it. Can you explain a bit about what your book looks at in terms of how governments work to create a climate of terror in order to exercise control over people in mm -hmm. order to gain certain riches? Sure. So um, Drug War Capitalism uh, is a book that I reported as a journalist. Um, so I hope it's kind of accessible to folks um, who might be interested. Um, and, it, and it basically did come out of that sort of journalistic inquiry and that, that question, I had also spent some time in Colombia um, in the early mid 2000s and um, essentially it, it, drug work has, capitalism starts with, with Plan Colombia, which was sort of an experiment um, in some ways in, in US foreign policy towards something that I call a comprehensive drug war. So instead of sending out you know, the odd plane or the odd military unit or having a sort of an uncoordinated approach um, to the drug war, uh, Plan Colombia became sort of like a whole of government, um, comprehensive, um, supposedly, right, a response to drug trafficking, to specifically to cocaine and also to guerrilla activity. Um, and so we saw, you know, harsh militarization, increased paramilitarization, 
um, and all these economic programs and, and policy changes and reforms that came online as well, all within the sort of discourse of preventing the arrival of cocaine and drugs to the United States. Plan Colombia started in Colombia in the year 2000 and formally it lasted for six years, but since then there's been sort of all these after effects and Colombia has never demilitarized the you know, US military spending on, on Colombia is still the highest in the hemisphere by far. Um, it's an incredibly painful, difficult um, country in terms of just the level of militarization and violence to this day is just unbelievable. So many, you know, incredible activists being murdered, et cetera. So what I did with drug war capitalism, and it was kind of spawned by this, a similar reflection where I had been, you know, I had experience reporting in Mexico, I had experience reporting in Colombia and, and around 2010, uh, Ciudad Juarez really started to come into the news, right on the north border of, of between Mexico and Texas. And so there was this simultaneous thing of suddenly Mexico is the center of the drug war and suddenly all these people are being murdered in Mexico and it's become horrible. And at the same time, they start talking about the Merida Initiative, which actually started in 2008. And they start talking the Merida Initiative. It's basically it's a plan Colombia for Mexico. And so when I sort of heard that, I started to I sort of put two and two together and that sort of made the hypothesis of what drug war capitalism ended up becoming, which is that where the US is promoting these comprehensive drug wars and funding to the tune of hundreds of millions or billions of dollars over a multi-year period, um, the war on drugs, the result is awful. The result is terror. The result is a war on the people. So that's kind of the genesis of, 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 the, of the book. It's phenomenal how violent Mexico became in such a short period. And then you have people domestically, including reporters, but also activists saying that the U.S. basically exported its own war on drugs that was being used in poor neighborhoods, African-American neighborhoods to other countries. What do you think about those theories? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it's very useful to think about things in that way. And I, I think it's, it's obviously we need to put things into local contexts, for example, in, in Colombia and Mexico and, and elsewhere, you also have very powerful local elites and local militaries who are taking these policies and running with them and they love it, right? So it's also you know, they are adapted and shaped, obviously, by local power structures in, in both of these countries. Um, but it's it's sort of that thing of de-exoticizing. So say this is not something that is happening in Colombia because Colombia is, is a country where dot, 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 or, you know, all these racist tropes about um, Mexicans being violent and so on, sort of as an inherent cultural feature. Like, absolutely not. These, in, in all three countries, in, in the United States, in, in Mexico, in Colombia, the violence that comes out of militarized prohibition um, is exercised by states um, in order to consolidate their own power. And it looks different in all these places. I've actually got an article in, in a magazine called Commune Magazine that looks at how, for example, in Mexico, one of the main uh, features or one of the main um, uh, the sort of motors of violence is is enforced disappearance and 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 disappearance of 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 people, especially poor people, marginalized folks, um, in different cities and towns across Mexico. And I compare that in this article in Commune magazine, or sort of use and and reflect upon 
in incarceration in the United States. And, and actually many activists and especially abolitionists talk about incarceration as, as disappearance. Um, people are disappeared out of their community. If you have, you know, how many every year sentence, you're effectively not there anymore. You're gone. Your presence isn't there. You, you're alive, but you're not, right? So comparing that use of the drug war in the U.S. specifically, I mean, there's obviously also um, a huge amount of violence, especially police violence, is justified and generated through prohibition. But the use of incarceration, whereas here in Mexico, um, you have also incarceration, but you have a huge amount of people being disappeared as well. And that disappearance and incarceration serve actually similar functions in, ter in terms of social control in many ways. So I think it's really useful to, to not think that because you've crossed from the US into Mexico and people are speaking Spanish, it's a completely different situation. No, it's like folks are still being targeted by and having to respond to these systems of extreme um, carceral um, military violence that are essentially made in the USA. A lot of our listeners won't know what disappearance means, because obviously we're not talking about Houdini here. When I was teaching at the University of Montréal, I got an email from a French publisher saying, would you write a chapter in our dictionary on violence about disappearance? And I said, okay, I know a lot about disappearance in the Americas, but you want an international? Okay, so I had to take out some research. You would be floored, I was by how long this has been used as a tactic mm. and how many people have been completely disappeared. And I'm including during the colonial hold of Algeria by the French in the last half of the 19th century, huge chunk of the population was disappeared. So a lot of people will remember disappearance from the Junta Militar in Argentina during mm -hmm. that sad chapter of history. The disappearance goes back quite a while the thing that shocked me is the disappearance that were happening of the women working in factories in Mexico in the early to mid 90s started to be evidenced when I was a graduate student in New York. Mm -hmm. I saw it because I was at conferences, you know, the latest thing comes up. So people will be talking about this. Can you sort of give a, a, a brief outline how this was enacted in Mexico? Sure. I mean, yeah, I think, again, part of what being having one foot in academia has let me do is is more so than I think most journalists um, have the time to do is is reach back and, and look back at sort of historical precedents. Um, so you know I think disappearance in these territories of Mexico also goes back to the early colonial period. Um, you had you know these slavers, uh, Portuguese slavers uh, and other slavers going up into the northern territories of Mexico. And, uh, and disappearing uh, people from their communities, indigenous tribal people from their communities and, and, um, and, and walking them out to the ports of Veracruz and, and, and forcing them to, walking them in, in, in chains to the ports of Veracruz and, and, and putting them on boats and sending them um, as enslaved people uh, to other colonies like Angola or, or Cuba, et cetera. So this history goes back a long way and, and that's part of, I think it's very, very important to reflect upon um, you know, those, those disappearances that have happened through, through colonial history and through state history, through the history of, of, of the Republic as, as being sort of precedent necessary to create the conditions for, for what's happening today. Um, 
disappearance in Mexico also, you know, has a, a very um, well-documented and, and important history through the 1960s and, and 70s with, you know, the Cold War. So during the same period that you had the disappearances you mentioned um, in Argentina by the mili mili military junta, where, you know, they were also being experienced throughout the Southern Cone, um, in, in Peru, uh, right, in, later in, in Colombia, in, in Central America. You Guatemala. also had a exactly, in, in Guatemala, with over 50,000 people disappeared. Um, you had a similar phenomenon in Mexico on a reduced scale um, related to the repression of, of guerrilla movements and, and, and any kind of popular movement, especially in Guerrero. Um, Alexander Avina actually has a, a wonderful book about um, resistance in, in Guerrero and, and disappearance through that time. Um, so just to, to also say like what's taking place in Mexico with these disappearances is not new um, for sure. So with Juarez, Juarez is a very, Juarez is a very complicated city. Um, it's across the border from El Paso, Texas. Um, it's much bigger than El Paso, Texas, and it, it was held up for many years. And, and in some circles, it still is held up as sort of a, uh, an example city, a city where, you know, there's so much employment opportunities compared to other places in Mexico, where there's all these factories and maquilas. And, and so it also drove migration to Mexico, um, especially from around the 1960s, 1970s onward to this day. Um, and it's also a place that for many different reasons, some of which I, I honestly don't understand, but has become very emblematic. So we'll talk just about Ciudad Juarez where people will use Ciudad Juarez as kind of a code. It, you know, they're talking about one place, but the inference is that it's Mexico, right? Um, or the reverse can also be true as if it's a complete separate thing from the rest of Mexico and what's happening there is only happening there. Like it's, it's very um, sort of, there's a poly, um, there's a sort of a, a um, Oh, I'm forgetting the word, but the, it, 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 it's very charged. And there's, there's a lot of research that has been done on Juarez and there's a lot of journalism and a lot of folks, you know, very prolific writers like, um, like deceased writer Charles Bowden, for example, who wrote so many books about Ciudad Juarez and, and really became quite known and it became sort of a shorthand. Um, but for sure, you know, it, 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 it's also a place, I think part of the reason why we talk about Ciudad Juarez now and we know about um, you know, the, the, the murders, the, the femicides of, of, of women working in factories and, and these disappearances and so on is because of resistance, because of community resistance, because of the mothers um, and the family members of these women making a huge scandal, speaking out, standing up and saying, this is not right, organizing caravans, press releases, lawsuits, you name it, right? So that activism is also why we're able to sort of refer to Ciudad Juarez in that way. And I think, um, so I've done some reporting in Ciudad Juarez, but my, my own work has taught me that it's not just Juarez, right? This is happening in many, in many countries, right? In many, in many cities in Mexico and, and in smaller places in Mexico where there's, there, there simply are not the social conditions um, for, for folks to be able to speak out about what's happening, which creates a kind of a silence, which makes it seem like, you know, there's not, there's nothing happening in these other places. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's the violence, the, the violence against women and the public exposure of women's bodies is, is 
horrid. Um, and unfortunately, um, I think it's something that's become more routine or almost, yeah, it's, 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 it's a terrible, I mean, Rita Segato talks about a sort of a pedagogy of violence, right? And, and that, that's definitely part of it. Um, but I think, you know, another part of it is that in what is through all of these years, you know, for every woman that, 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 that is murdered, um, you know, a, approximately nine, eight or nine men are also murdered. So one of the questions I asked to sort of stimulate debate is there's an incredibly powerful feminist movement now in Mexico that's been increasingly, you know, gaining momentum, um, especially over the last five years or so. And I, I, I'll say, like, imagine if men reacted to a killing the way women do by protesting, by by standing up, by um, doing like online campaigns, by spray painting, by organizing. We would be living in a different country, right? So <laughs> things would be very different if there was that level of social um, resistance and and rejection of of the murders of men as there is in many cases with with the murders of women so yeah it's it's a very complicated um and and very sad i mean i think that's it's just absolutely it's sad but it's it's more than sad it's outrageous right because when you look through the history and you and you talk to these women you know who are family members of women who have been murdered or who've been disappeared there is always, uh, you know, omissions, and um, uh, there, there's always obstacles put up by different levels of government to actually resolving these cases, to actually finding these women, to actually having some kind of justice. So it's 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 outrageous. And I mean, I think the thing to remember is because these events happened in the '90s, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that the pain of those families has has gone away at all right so we're talking about families that that have been dealing with these intense wounds and this intense pain for decades now and have seen have seen the creation of hundreds of thousands of more victims like themselves around the country like it's it's absolutely heartbreaking there's certainly a heritage in latin america of women being mm -hmm. the ones on the front lines to speak out mm -hmm. we saw it with the La, las madres de plaza de mayo yeah. then we saw it with the abuelas We're seeing it in Mexico. We've seen it actually in Nicaragua. I used to work for the mm -hmm. Sandinista government. I was a professor there. The women mm -hmm. were doing the heavy lifting. And it's, it's a great testimony to what many in the West do not see because people in the West tend to think, you know, Simone de Beauvoir. And I'm like, wait a sec. <laughs> you know, Flora Tristan was behind a lot of the feminism during the French Revolution and her origins we're Peruvian. So, you know, I always encourage people to read a lot more because it's quite tremendous to me to see some of the people who speak out on this, including journalists like yourself mm -hmm. and one of my great mm -hmm. heroes, Ponya Tosca. She brought to light some of the most horrific mm -hmm. historical issues in Mexico mm -hmm. in such a beautiful prose and even crossing boundaries in the same way that Joan Didion did between journalism and testimonial, as it were. I'm just wondering, though, that now that the disappeared in Mexico is over 80,000, oh my God, this is from the early 1990s, from the maquiladores in, in Ciudad Juarez, all the way through more recent disappearances, which yeah. your latest book talks about. And your book deals with Guerra Neoliberal, and, but it's on the front of Torreón. 
you write about mm -hmm. the history of disappearance quite beautifully. You give it a greater context. I really, I can't tell you enough how much I love your writing because you go to great lengths historically, well cited about the economic machines mm -hmm. of Coahuila's past colonization, which were you know ranging from agriculture to cattle ranching, slavery, mm. mining, slavery being the most lucrative. You note this region's having the condition of being a frontier between the 16th and 20th centuries, mm. having been constantly confined in one way or another from being a war frontier, a cultural frontier, mm. a, a political frontier. And then in the chapter that you entitle, well, your book is in, in Spanish, so mm. I will translate for listeners, historical approach mm -hmm. of La Laguna in four episodes of disappearance. Love that chapter because you talk about how in the 16th century land was put into the hands of mm -hmm. the Marquesado de Aguayo, 14 million hectares, which was later sold to landowners for, and you talk about the flow mm -hmm. of possession, of capital. A lot of people listening again don't know about the greater heritage in Latin America of latifundismo, etc. But mm -hmm. it's really interesting to see how even as early as the 19th century, there were already investments taking place in this area mm -hmm. by French, Germans, Italians, Belgians, mm -hmm. Americans. You note the long presence in this one in this chapter of Chinese immigrants and how they had attained such wealth that by around 1910, they were one of the most prosperous foreign groups in the region. They mm -hmm. had interests in everywhere. And then you document the racism that was built up. And I mentioned this because this is particularly prescient for today, I think, where we're seeing in North America protests over police killings and so forth. But interestingly enough, the racialism has taken precedence over the class issues, which is what I found fascinating in your book is you, you show directly how governments were able to capitulate on the hatred of the Chinese to sort of control the population all the more in a way, right? Mm -hmm. And you go through with great detail and historical evidence, mostly the events that went on in Torreon, the scenes, the corpses of Chinese shopkeepers and employees being dragged through the streets and such. What I'm curious about is how the problems of the 19th century of class division were displaced upon minority communities, because it's very convenient for governments mm -hmm. to say it's the Chinese, it's not the fact that we're hoarding the wealth. How might these kinds of scenes that you researched historically and then witnessed as a journalist, what do they say to the larger problems? Using Torreon as an example for Mexico, what is going on now with multinational investments in that region? I mean, that's a that's a very big question. Just to go back just for a moment. So we're actually coming up on the 110th anniversary of the of the massacre of of actually it was 303 Chinese people um, in Torreón, um, which took place in, in 1911. Um, and I think one thing that's really important um, for 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 us, for folks as leftists, um, as 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 organizers or writers who consider ourselves progressive, who wish for a better society is to understand that anti-Chinese racism in Mexico wasn't just the purview of governments. In fact, Ricardo Flores Magón and you know, the, the anarchists that were part of the Mexican Liberal Party also used tropes and anti-Chinese racism 
um, as a tool um, to try to attract support um, and to try to deflect um, criticism in different moments. And it's, it's, it's a very understudied aspect of, of the politics of the Flores Magón. Um, also, you know, it was also happening through different official, so the, the, the folks that carried out the massacre were um, troops connected to Madero's army. Um, so this was in the context of the Mexican Revolution. There was never a proper recognition of that massacre. There's never been any reparations. There's still uh, folks in Torreon, Chinese community in Torreon, but it's, so I was trying to connect with um, surviving Chinese organizations, community organizations, and there was one man who was still alive and he, and basically I tried multiple times and was, he's too old and sick to, to do an interview. So if it, I, you know, I frame that massacre of uh, 303 Chinese people in Torreon in 1911 as an attempt to disappear um, mm -hmm. the Chinese mm -hmm. community, right? What's really interesting, there's there's work by a scholar named Gerardo Renique, and he he uh, puts a, a theory out there, which, which I absolutely think um, is true, which is that after the revolution, um, the, the, the Mexican government uh, was struggling to unite a country that is so different. So so different from south to north, right? So one of the differences that's really important is also just the north of Mexico has a history in some ways of colonization. It's much more similar that, to North America. And the south of Mexico, there's a history of conquest of, uh, of established, uh, settled indigenous uh, polities, right? So the uh, post-revolution, the Mexican government is struggling and struggling to to create a unified nation. And what Renique says, and I think very convincingly argues, is they use anti-Chinese racism to do that. From Sinaloa to Chiapas, the argument was keep the Chinese out, uh, keep the Mexican race pure, uh, which is it's explosive, but it also just gives an idea how, uh, how racism is built into the fabric of Mexicans, Mexico's national myths, um, and, 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 and nationalism as well. So yeah, I think, you know, looking and trying to unpack some of this stuff and going back to 110 years to that massacre in Torreón and the fact that when I started working on my PhD, so Torreón is a, it's a, it's a medium-sized city uh, by Mexican standards. It's part of a, metro, a metropolitan area of about um, a million people. And it's, it's basically due south of, of, of San Antonio, Texas. When I started, it, but it's not, it's not Ciudad Juarez, right? It's not uh, somewhere very famous where people go to study violence. So when I started working on my thesis, my advisors who are, you know, Mexican PhDs who are, have years of experience and, and know, as far as I'm concerned, are absolute experts in Mexico had no idea that this massacre had taken place, right? So it's also something that's been purposely forgotten, minimized. Uh, and I think excavating some of that history and is, is very important to, to not repeating it, right? It's, it's very, very important to, to remember and to, and to retell these, these, these stories from, from the recent past in Mexico. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. The idea of disappearance 
is also the fact that it doesn't exist. You know, one of the things exactly. If exactly. you read Alicia Partnoy's The Little School, where she was captured and attempted to be disappeared, she survived. But one of the things she said that disappearance is very much related to the idea that you're not only made out of sight, but you're made out of mind because there are no records about you. And what struck me is I interviewed a mother once in in Argentina whose children both were disappeared. She was in her 80s at the time. And she said to me, you know, I went to the local police prefecture I asked them and they said, what have you to worry about? You're a wealthy middle upper class family. Your kids probably went skiing in Switzerland. And she said, no, my kids would not just go and leave for Switzerland. And and she said, you know, they made it quite clear that there was no record of their children anywhere. That Mm -hmm. was proof that her children might not have even existed. You see what I'm saying? It is so pernicious, this kind of uh, ideology. John, John Gibbler, actually, who's a, who's a fantastic journalist um, who writes uh, a lot about Mexico, he talks about, I don't want to put words in exactly into his mouth, I can't remember his exact formulation, but he talks about these different moments of disappearance. So the first moment being that actual, um, you know, taking that person, removing them from their home, from the street, from wherever they should be. And, and sometimes that first moment, often that first moment, involves state forces, involves um, people connected to the government, sometimes it doesn't. But then there's the second moment, which he talks about, which is administrative disappearance, which is exactly what you're talking about, right? So it's, it's pretending that it's, it's, you know, they're lo- pretending essentially saying, okay, we'll look for them, not looking for them, and not making any effort for them to appear in, 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 in any way over a long, and this is the, this is the, this is the part of disappearance that, that tends to last the longest, right? And which the families are right now, and the Madres de la Plaza de Mayo are fighting against, right? Which is by using their voices, using their bodies, going out into the streets, going out into the killing fields and, and searching and protesting is a way to bring, at least bring these, the names of the disappeared back bring the idea that they're gone into the public imaginary, into the media, into the present. Um, and it's, it's really a struggle against that, that administrative disappearance, which is, which is done by the state, completely done by the state. And you well document the historical scene of violence in Torreon to show how racism and labor issues were intertwined and how capitalism right. profited by this division in the mm-hmm. early 19th century where the problems of class division were displaced upon minority communities. And you, you mentioned just a bit ago about how multinationals were capitalizing on this, not just the government. You do speak about the positive efforts of people to organize and push back. What's mm. happened in Torreon as a result? Sure. So in Torreon, um, there, was, there was, I think, one reported disappearance uh, in the 1990s. Uh, and then in 2004, a young woman named uh, Silvia Stefani Sanchez-Viesco was disappeared. And her mother has become one of the main leaders over this period in Torreon. Um, her mother, whose name is Silvia Ortiz, and she tells, she tells everyone who, who asks her, she started looking for her daughter half an hour after she was disappeared. So she's now been searching for her daughter for over 15 years. Um, And she talks about how when her daughter disappeared, she went to authorities and she told them, do something about this. Do something about this or this is going to happen to more people. 
this is a very powerful testimony because now since since Fanny disappeared or was disappeared in 2004, there has been thousands of people disappeared in Torreón. So basically with the introduction of the, the Iniciativa Merida, the Merida Initiative, the rollout of the drug war, the militarization of this region has led to a spike in disappearances that is ongoing, right? So it's, it's not something that happened. Um, there's less folks being disappeared year by year in this part of Mexico than there was, say, in 2008 or 2010 uh, or 2012, but it's still much more of a problem than it was previous to the war on drugs. So basically, you know, over this period, starting especially from 2008, 2009, you start getting hundreds of people being disappeared from Torreón every year. Um, and in now, I'm I'm always bad with the years, and that's why I say I'm, I'm that's why I'm a writer because it's <laughs> I can have it written down. I have this sort of mind blanks as well. But I think it was in 2014 that the Mexican government, because of pressure from all these different family members, because this is happening around the country, um, the 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 government said, okay, we're going to do a victims' law. We're going to have a victims' law that's going to recognize some of what's going on, and 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 we're going to call on groups of, of victims from around the country in their different cities to get together and give input and ideas on what the what the victims law is going to look like. And so that gathering is the first time that what becomes Grupo Vida and Torreón, the group that I work with um, on my second book, which was actually my PhD dissertation, um, that was the first time they came together and they came together as, as, as sort of individuals and, you know, not not politicized not activists, rather individuals uh, with with family members who'd been disappeared. And that began a process of collectivity, which has eventually led them to become uh, Grupo Vida in particular is a search group. So what they do is they go and they look for human remains um, in in different areas and it's mostly collective owned land and that that's why it was really important in 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 my most recent book to look at that aspect of collective land because that's where they're doing the land searches and that's where they're finding so many human remains and try to recuperate those remains um, have them sent for genetic testing and try to get matches with with family members who have folks disappeared um, so it, it it went from uh, folks fighting on their own, you know, feeling very um, isolated um, as a family member and stigmatized because, you know, disappearance is very stigmatized here um, as, you know, someone who's disappeared was involved in, in criminal activity. That's the sort of official message that you get from the government. So getting together, breaking that stigma, um, starting by doing protests on Mother's Day and so on. It was actually after Ayotzinapa, which is the most well-known case of, of mass disappearance here in Mexico when the 43 students were disappeared from, uh, from in Iguala Guerrero. So what happened after Ayotzinapa was that they started sending out self-organized uh, search groups started going out and, and looking for the remains of these students. And that made national headlines. And, and basically in Torreón, the, the group Grupo Vida that was get, now getting together and doing things like, you know, um, marches and, and protests and letter writing and advocacy actually said, why don't we go look too? And at this time, uh, there, there's an estimated over 120 uh, such search collectives now, family member-led search collectives around Mexico and, and women-led, right? So it's, it's become a very powerful movement. It's a very painful movement. Um, you know, it's, it's 
even just as a journalist connecting with the pain of these family members is is something that that feels uh you know like trauma um so the actual you know their pain is is just on another scale um but and and they and they are doing this work in extremely dangerous conditions there's an excellent story in the new york times from a few months ago about uh, Miriam Rodriguez, who's who's one of these women who found the remains of her daughter through this exhaustive search, and she was later murdered in her home, right? So they're 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 being threatened. They're 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 going up. They're they're show, they're showing the authorities. They're they're de demonstrating the corruption, the involvement of state forces in these in these events of, of disappearance. Extremely brave work. Extremely powerful women. Um, and and just so much pain, but that but that that is it's it's one of I think one of the most incredible types of movements um, that I've ever had the honor of, of of accompanying, but also just in on the national landscape currently in Mexico. Certainly, these women-led search movements are 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 very important, are very central, and and like you said before, you know they they. The Grupo Vida, for example, Silvia, who who has been looking for her daughter for 15 years, there's there's probably over 100 families in Grupo Vida now. Many of them are domestic workers. Um, they're not, most of them are not professionals. They do not have you know media skills or trainings that, or they're not lawyers or advocates. They're actual self-organized victims, and. It's just so powerful watching them contest the state and 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 through direct action, because I do consider these searches a form of direct action, uh, demand demand the return of their loved one, demand that the state, you know, do it do the minimum that it should be doing to be looking for these folks, to be doing the genetic uh, matches and so on. And and often because of classism and and, and, and racism in Mexico, their voices aren't mainstream in some ways. Like they're not, you know, it's, it's, it's more often like the lawyer or the advocate or myself as a white journalist being quoted than actually these women's voices getting out there. So, I mean, I, I also think part of the work of accompanying them is just really a testament, a trying to myself, you know, honor, really deeply honor their voices, their expertise, their struggle, their pain, their knowledge. Their, their, their power. Yeah. Is there a tendency in Mexico that many of the desaparecidos be are are not mestizo but are indigenous? Then, um. Well, we don't have really like aggregated information uh, regarding um, ethnicity and disappearance okay. in Mexico. So we 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 can talk about, for example, age. Right, most people being disappeared are under the age of 25. It's definitely what Mexico is, is living through is a war on youth and young people. Uh, most, but not all, uh, people being disappeared are men, um, and the majority of folks being disappeared are the the number one factor for being disappeared in Mexico is your geographical location. So for a few years, Torreón was a place where if you were a young man of a certain age walking in a certain neighborhood, your chances of being disappeared were astronomical. Um, whereas if you were perhaps a young man of the same age in the same you know, class in another city in Mexico, you, you weren't as exposed. So that geography is really important. And that's why, I, you know, one of the reasons why I found Ruth Wilson Gilmore's work around incarceration in California, her book, Golden Gulag, so important in terms of why, why geography matters, because really it is central. So 
you know, you mentioned Argentina. We kind of referred to it a few times. I've got a piece, um, an essay um, about neoliberal disappearance that's just come out in Latin American perspectives. Oh, excellent. And what I look at, what I look at there is, 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 is this the differences between there's obviously continuities between the disappearances in Argentina in the 70s and and in, in Mexico in the 70s and today but there's also so many differences and one of those differences is that is that what's taking place in Mexico right now is fully depoliticized by the state by the government by the United States what they're saying is it's a war between criminals right so whereas in Argentina in the 70s you had this very clear situation where we're talking about young people organizing for a better world, trade unionists, uh, activists being disappeared, being targeted for disappearance because they were leftists. And, and in the language of the government of the junta, you know, because they were foreigners, because they were atheists, right? Because they were outside of the social contract. But we, but I think now there's a sort of, we understand that history that it, they were attacked because they were leftists, because they had a different vision for the world, for Argentina, for what things should look like, and their disappearance, and and these dirty wars or these uh, military juntas in 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 that period were fundamental to the imposition of neoliberalism. So it was like you know cut the heads off of all these projects of all these alternative socialist, communist, commune organizing union ideas, and impose neoliberalism, harsh neoliberalism, right? And what's happening here in Mexico is that we is that there's a stigmatization of victims of disappearance. And I think this is, you know, increasingly less common because folks because it's so widespread now. Um, but there's, the, the, you know, it's treated as something beyond the, with no politics involved. It's just about, you know, drug running and money and greed and bad guys. And so that's where I start looking at. I, I, and I propose that we talk about neoliberal disappearance as to understand how disappearance is taking place in contemporary Mexico. I mean, activists are still targeted, right? You know, well-known leftists, unfortunately, are still targeted, but the majority of people dis being disappeared in Mexico do not fit that criteria. They're not activists. They're not, they're not folks who are organized um, in, in, into, or into leftist organizations, nothing like that. They're, they're regular folks, often poor folks, um, who are essentially just being removed, right? They're being disappeared. Um, and, and, and that creates all kinds of, of, of social, you know, um, well, it creates terror, it prevents mobility, it, it impoverishes the families. Um, and so, you know, just like looking at the strategy today and how it's different from what was happening in the 70s and in the 80s and even the, in the 90s, like in Guatemala and so on, I think is important to move away from like stigmatizing victims of disappearance or saying, well, it's not political. It's just a bunch of, it's just criminals. And it's like, no, like, how can it be criminals when you have surveys showing that like in some of these neighborhoods, like more than one in 10 families has a disappeared family member. Like this is not, you don't have mass graves because of criminal activity. You have mass graves when you're in a war, right? So that's, I think part of the work that I've been trying to do um, well, that I'm trying to do with, with the most recent book and that is sort of my quest, I guess you could say, um, theoretically, or in the way that I approach Mexico is to really politicize what's going on as a war that, that does have a lot to do with politics. It has to do with displacing people from resource-rich territories. It has to do with preventing migration. It has to do with, with preventing an open and, and functioning media system, et cetera. So, yeah. Yeah, well, in your book, you talk about 
this very unclear line between criminals and law enforcement. And how on earth then is the government able to handle this? And who is the government saying is at fault for the disappearance? Who are they blaming for this? Well, so what's interesting, and I think is, 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 is worth really reflecting on in, in depth is that many times with the disappearance, the government or, or you know, the state, so the state of Coahuila or the state of Puebla through the, attorney, the state attorney general's office and through the police, uh, what they'll do is they'll essentially say it was a criminal was responsible for the disappearance and a criminal was disappeared. So they present these disappearances as being completely out of their hands and as being basically uh, movements within a kind of criminal underworld, which just is absolutely flies in the face of reality, absolutely flies in the face of reality. Often the perpetrators, the direct material perpetrators of disappearances are police, municipal police, state police, special forces, Marines, uh, soldiers, et cetera. And often the folks, you know, being disappeared are not like quote unquote criminals. And I mean, I think that's another, it opens another thing of even if they were involved in criminal activity, did they deserve to be disappeared? No, of course they did not. Right. But so there's, there's also, you know, there's, there's so many levels on which this discourse serves the state as a way to sort of wash their hands of of campaigns of extreme violence against the population um, and, and turning people against each other. You know, it's, it's so sad to, to interview family members of people who've been disappeared who say, well, I, you know, I, you know, I do this activism, but I try to keep it quiet because I want to maintain relationships with the rest of my family. Or like when my cousins found out that my son had disappeared, they didn't want to see me anymore because they assumed like by association, it would be dangerous because my son must've been involved in something. Do you know, like just, it just is, it's an absolute torture for these family members um, to have a, to have a, to have a disappeared child. It's, it's, it's just awful. Um, and it's something that unfortunately the state is, is actively participating in and then telling us that, you know, the bad guys are doing it to other bad guys. Are there any NGOs on the ground that are, let's say not connected to <laughs> the police or the government who are able to make any headway in investigating this? Yeah. I mean, honestly, Mexico has incredible, um, incredible sort of civil society there's all kinds of there's all kinds of organizations doing you know data research doing collecting testimonials um assisting family members in bringing cases to you know international courts um to some degree accompaniment but i mean mexico is a huge country it's very centralized right so a lot of the resources and a lot of the sort of more established groups with funding are are in mexico city and most of these collectives are are spread, you know, around in in cities that aren't as big um, or as important. Um, and so often on the ground, it does appear that these groups are are working, you know, in a quite precarious way, um, sort of on their own. But there are there are certainly there's like there's an incredible amount of of investigation and and, and also investigative journalism, you know. E- even in, in, in a country with so many journalists being murdered and, and being threatened and, and so on, there's still incredible journalism that, 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 that is telling these stories. But it's, again, it's very difficult to find. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of it ends up behind paywalls, uh, et cetera. So yeah, it's, 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 an up, it's, it's certainly an uphill battle and in, in every way, but, but uh, you know, I think that it's also, 
it's it's beca- it's becoming because of the work of these family members and these collectives it's a national issue that people around the country are aware of and and it wasn't like that even 10 years ago right i have students in mexico who i keep in touch with and they tell me about what's happening and that's when the scales fall off my eyes as it were and so yeah i mean this is a mexico that were i to go back today i would not recognize because that fear that people have embodied now because you know it's palpable especially as you mentioned in certain places um i i remember mexico being very safe you see at least that part of mexico so there's a lot of contradictions and also how we get the information again your writing is is amazing because you get at what is old school journalism you go for facts I'm very happy to see that because so much of our journalism is fear-mongering, clickbait. And now with the rise of the post-Huffington Post revolution of blogging, we've seen journalism take a blow. The Huff Post relied on a lot of volunteer non-journalists giving them stuff to click on that wasn't necessarily fact checks and mostly op-ed, which set another model for op-ed dominating some places. And so what is the role of the journalist today in the era of clickbait news when very important topics not just the ones you work on I mean we know of journalists everywhere you know Maria Risa in Philippines is facing her own battle there it's incredible what's happening to any journalist who's working on issues of violence any kinds of threats to the working class to poor people including trafficked people so we have journalism that is either not being remunerated because many publications have closed shop and then you have the blogosphere mm-hmm. which means that a lot of publications don't want to pay writers right because they have their free writers who could be 15 year olds they don't know they just take it and run it and then you have really solid journalism during the post 9/11 era i don't think i would have made it sanely if it were not for a lot of robert fisk's writing there is a problem as well with the clickbait happening that becomes activist journalism and i what i liked about reading your work is that you give facts you, you can't make up the facts you can't make up a massacre but then ideology has run rampant in a lot of journalism on the left and i find myself struggling with that because sometimes i'll th- send in a pitch i'll give you a good example last last summer God, it was so hard these lockdowns sent a pitch to one of my editors about the psychological effects of lockdown oh we can't run that because it looked like we don't believe the virus is real and i wrote back but this isn't about any of that this is about the effects psychologically on people like you know i've interviewed people i've interviewed elderly <laughs> who say please don't do this for our sake you know and so you have a lot of political decisions happening because a lot of these publications want people not to write them angry letters saying how dare you say the virus isn't real what is the way that a leftist right. journalist that we can still do journalism without maybe feeding the fire of either wokery or political narratives and still keep to objective pieces also op-eds i mean op-eds are not bad but how do we do it 
I mean, I'm not a good person to give advice on this. You know, I'm, I'm not an early career journalist, but uh, financially, I probably look like one on paper. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, there's just so there has been just been so many changes in the mediascape, even, you know, since I've entered journalism. So I, you know, I've started, I started writing in the early 2000s and I, I finished journalism school in 2010. And even between finishing journalism school and today is like night and day. Um, you know, I was just doing some reading recently about, uh, yeah, I've been doing some research on sort of fake news and, and misinformation and, 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 and that, and that whole incredible uh, sphere that sometimes feels like it's the dominant sphere of, of, of information out there. And, and, you know, there's very little, research actually that's been done on leftist conspiracy theories right so a lot of the research uh into the, the left-wing media it has more to do with hashtags and activism and the, the research on the right-wing media the academic research has more to do with the sort of conspiracy and, and the fake news but i think it would be useful to start doing some of that research and you know looking at how the conspiracies are spreading on on the left as well because like you said you can't make up an, a massacre but currently there's a lot of people who put themselves out there as anti-imperialist journalists who are who are trying to deny that massacres took place who, who are trying to deny you know that that the syrian government is using chemical weapons against its people etc right so this it, it seems unbelievable it, it feels unbelievable and as someone who's worked with so many folks maybe not worked with but interviewed and accompanied so many folks who are survivors of massacres, who are who are victims of you know having a family member disappeared. The idea of of of, of presenting yourself as a leftist and then and then and a progressive person with progressive values, and then the idea of denying that 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 these events took place is just is something that really it really it deeply, deeply bothers me. Um, it really is something I get worked up about it. Like I try not to get worked up about stuff. I try to just, you know, put my head down and, and do the research and, and move forward and, 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 and try to stay, you know, on my course. But I really, I do get very worked up about this, this kind of denialism that is increasingly common, for example, in, in so-called like leftist media outlets. But yeah, in terms of, you know, advice, I just think, you know, I take my information from folks on the ground. Um, so, and, and, that, and that's been, you know, I think for me, one of the things that's been really difficult with COVID is I was, you know, I'm supposed to be writing a book right now. And, you know, I was, I was trying to, you know, say, okay, I, I can still do it. You know, I'll just interview people on Zoom or whatever. And I just, I finally just gave up and said, and talked to my editor and said, you know, we're on pause until I'm vaccinated and enough people in Mexico are vaccinated for me to safely travel because I want to be in folks' kitchen. I want to be in, in folks' workplace listening to them talk about what's going on among each other and understand how they're understanding the world and try to share that with, you know, readers who simply do not have access to these spaces, to these discussions. So I think for me, like my journalism practice, I mean, there's obviously an element of research in it, looking for documents, doing sort of open source research online. But I, I think the key, the central part of it is really being in the same space as as folks as survivors as activists as 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 mobilized victims and just 
hearing it directly from them. And, and often like the first time I hear something, I'll just be like, that just doesn't seem right. And then you just hear it over and over again. And you go, this is, this is how they're interpreting the world. And this is how their story should be told because it's like, so really trying to keep that, that honesty and that, and that, and that, and that, that quality to people's own experience. I think that that to me is really essential. I mean, and then the, the other question of how do you do that? That's the hard part, right? Because it's like, there's really hardly any resources for folks now for to do this kind of journalism. So obviously there's some, there's some amazing funds. There's the, you know, the International Fund for Women's Media. There's the International Fund for Investigative Journalism. ProPublica, look, there are all these kind of funds that folks are, are using to be able to get some resources to do these kind of, 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 of reports. But it's it's definitely, you know, when when corporate media is on the left or right is tied to analytics and analytics is showing that the best, the things that are performing best are listicles and, and clickbait and, and, and oftentimes actually fake news, um, the, 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 motivation for editors and publishers to be funding long-term investigative journalism is is very low right so anyone who's doing investigative journalism right now hats off um and uh and then you know doing that as, as, as a leftist and as a progressive who who for example you know there's i mean yeah that's another thing right like trying to work with progressive media um and, and with folks where I, I feel like you know my my voice as well and, and and my perspectives won't be bent or changed to fit some kind of a, a, an editorial standard is, is is also you know it's it's challenging but a lot of us are doing other work a lot of investigative journalists are also doing other work so I do a lot of translation um, you know other folks teach uh, folks work in in grocery stores like. There's all kinds of, of, of strategies that folks are using. Um, but yeah, I think another important question is like, how do, how do we help folks maintain this type of work over a longer term, right? Because it's, it's very, it can lead to burnout for sure. It comes back to the ethics of journalism. We know Kafka, although not a journalist, he worked in a bank and wrote his books right. when he could. So the role of the journalist needs to be funded, definitely the beautiful underbelly of where you find the moss are, are people doing collective organizing and fighting back. And, and Mexico has such a rich history intellectually. It's not a coincidence that Sandino went there to study. I mean, Mexico has a rich history in so many aspects. And I think, you know, part of, part of what's hard to sometimes communicate is just the depth and the, and the breadth of, of popular resistance. Um, to neoliberalism. And, you know, I've been really influenced by thinkers here in Puebla, like Raquel Gutierrez Aguilar and, and others who, who have helped me understand that resistance doesn't just look like a march, right? Resistance doesn't just look like an organization. Popular resistance can be simply having, fighting for your public space to sell fruits and vegetables or to sell sodas, whatever. Like there's, and there's so many, regardless of all the efforts to sort of formalize and, and force put folks into maquila jobs and 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 create and and impose neoliberalism here through force um, and to maintain this huge inequality through force and through violence, which is I think one of the main sort of points that I try to communicate in my work, is folks are still organizing the the communitarian popular networks that 
continue to thrive um, regardless of, of, of all, all of this multi-layered violence. So yeah, Mexico is a very difficult place, especially, I mean, the state really, it's the state of people generally are amazing here until they've got a uniform on. Um, but it, it, but that, that understanding that the, the level of violence being enacted on people like right now in Guanajuato state, for example, it's moving around. It's not always taking place in the same part of the country. It's directly proportional to people's, you know, resistance to people's resistance, to people's uh, spirit of resistance, to the possibility of resistance, um, to, to living a dignified life. And, and that's why this violence is, is so harsh. Like it's, 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 yeah, it's really important to, to visualize and see that resistance. And it, it's, it's something really very beautiful um, here on, on a daily basis and in the, in the markets or, or, or that you can see without needing to see a march, you can, you can see and, and feel resistance and, and popular organizing all, all over the place. And that, that's really beautiful. Thank you.